Hi, I'm Rachel. And I'm Lori. And we're the Sex Positive Christian Feminists. Hello, Rachel here. When Lori and I recorded this episode, Mercury was in retrograde. And true to form, we had some technical difficulties partway through recording. So what we have for you today is basically the first half of what was supposed to be a full episode. Um, but we think that it was such a a great way to discuss how we both perceive virgin martyrs differently that we wanted to share it with you anyway. So enjoy the next 27 minutes. Hello and welcome to another Tuesday morning with the Sex Positive Christian Feminists. How are you doing today, Lori? I am doing well. Technology is, I think for the past like three days, four days, month maybe, technology has just abandoned me entirely. So this is our take two for those who are watching. So (laughs) listening, watching. Yes, this is our take two because Mercury is in retrograde and it doesn't like us, just like it doesn't like anyone else. (laughs) Um. So, Lori, today we are going to chat about the Virgin Martyrs, specifically because it has come up several times in conversation, and we have radically different feelings about it because of the way that we were raised to think about female sexuality, and I think it's a really exciting and interesting conversation. So, tell me your story about how you learned about the Virgin Martyrs and what they meant to you. So... For those who are raised in purity culture who are listening to this, you'll, you might resonate, especially in the Protestant world, because I know the Catholics, Catholics have a way of understanding purity culture that sounds like, when Rachel and I talk about this, it sounds it's just a little bit different. So for me, it was being a virgin was until you were married. And the greatest thing you could do, the holiest thing you could do was save your virginity for your future husband. And that was your greatest calling in life. So when I was in college and I heard about these stories about these women who were holy because they refused to get married and fought against this idea of marriage, I was thinking, these are feminists. So for those who don't know, these are St. Cecilia, St. Thecla. You had listed a bunch of them before as well, Rachel, that... Felicity, Perpetua, Eulalia, basically like all of the ones that you can think of that aren't the kids from what was that when they like saw the Virgin Mary in like I mean there's tons of real yeah there's all these these all these stories of children (laughs) seeing Mary but Perpetua but Perpetua wasn't a virgin because she had a baby oh that's a good point but she Felicitas might might have been one though but either way there's There's a lot of them there's a lot of them there's (laughs) a lot of them and they're elevated because, and a lot of them in their stories have these men who want to marry them. And they're like, I'm not going to marry you. I'm going to be a virgin for the rest of my life. And there's this, from my perspective, when I heard about them, there was this crazy independence because until I had heard about them, being a Christian woman meant getting married. So if a man's like, I want to marry you, you're like, how can I convert you to become a Christian? And I'll use my sexual ways to convert you. That would have been holy. But her saying, no, I'm not going to have sex with you. I'm going to go travel with St. Paul. This is St. Thecla. Instead, is, was super, sounded like feminism to me at this point. 
So I, I went through my whole feminist journey, decided I wanted to go to Boston College for grad school, still thought the martyrs were cool. I had still thought they were really cool. I didn't necessarily want to be, well, that ship had sailed, but I didn't want to be a virgin martyr in the sense that I, I understood that there was a problem with virginity and the elevation of virginity, but I still thought these stories were really empowering to me. Get to BC and all these women who grew up Catholic are with me and they were like, those stories are horrific. They're terrible. They're horrible for young girls to hear. And I'm like, I felt like it was like walking into uh, the Twilight Zone because something that had given me so much liberation didn't. And so Rachel, why don't you go ahead and explain why those stories were so horrible for you? So in Catholicism, you've got multiple things that you can do for your capital V vocation. And for women, it's basically you've got two choices. You either become a religious sister, um, technically there's three, or you become like just somebody who's single, or you become someone who's married. And when you hear these stories growing up, it becomes really apparent that the people who are becoming saints that are being noticed by the church are never the people who are married. It's always a lot of religious sisters, a lot of cloistered religious sisters, but a lot of religious sisters, and a lot of like young women from long, long time ago, millennia ago, who refused to have sex with somebody and then they got killed. So... And they refused to have sex with somebody specifically because of Christianity and they wanted to protect their virtue. And so you get this image in your mind that like the holiest people that there are, so far as women are concerned, are those who are not married and are those who do not have sex ever. And then of course you have the pinnacle of all holy women who is both a virgin and a mother in the person of Mary, Jesus's mother. Because in Catholicism, there's no room for having like that phrase in one of the gospels that says um jesus's brothers and sisters or jesus's siblings or something like we read that as no that's really just saying his cousins it wasn't his actual it wasn't like mary's children or of anything potentially it was like kids from joseph joseph's previous marriage that maybe happened or maybe didn't like there's all these ways of getting around that so some of which are more plausible than others. But essentially, it's like Mary clearly did not have any other children of her own, and she definitely did never have sex with Je with Joseph, and therefore, like, this is just not something that you do if you're going to be the holiest of the holy women that are available to you. You cannot have sex. Um, and so the virgin martyrs are, like, just shoving it in your face that the most important way of being holy is by not having sex period. That that's the way that you go to God if you are a woman is keeping your legs together. And so it's so fascinating to me because I grew up never even hearing these women's names. So the only holy women were women from like, I mean, the 80s who wrote Passion and Purity or these women who were telling us to keep our legs closed until we were married, those were examples to, of me of holy women who got married and then had a bunch of babies and were moms making cookies and, you know, writing books and doing mommy blogging. Like that was being a good Christian woman. Or you could follow your husband and convert people 
who uh, live in the jungle to Christianity. You could do that too, but the best way to do that is to marry someone. So even in Gordon, there's the ring by spring or your money back. So Christian colleges have this thing that if you don't get engaged by spring of your junior year, and I got married by spring of my junior year, so I did a really good job at that one, but (laughs) get engaged by the spring of your junior year or you get your money back. If you're really doing it right, if you're really holy, you're marrying someone who's going to be a pastor. So I also did that right. But and if you're really holy, you're gonna, you're going to become a missionary. Not didn't do that part right. But so you have to you have to give up your entire life for this man and to be his support system. So when I hear about a woman named Thecla who is sitting up in her balcony engaged she's done everything within the evangelical world that she's supposed to do and she disobeys her father she disobeys her fiance and she goes and follows God and said and if I were to say when I was 18 years old I'm not going to get married I'm going to move to New York City and I'm going to follow my dreams and my desires and become this person who's so excited about my joy and my passion instead of getting married, I would have been a sinful woman and I would have been labeled as a sinful woman. All these ideas of being independent, like Thecla, was being wrong. Perpetua is another example that is fascinating because she does have kids. She is married, but she point blank says, I'm not a mother, I'm not a wife, I'm not a daughter, I'm a Christian and I am nothing else. And to me, that is such a in such an empowering statement to hear that I could actually just be defined by my faith and not by how the men in my life are telling me I'm supposed to live my faith, that these women had a link to God that, that made them break away from. And it, in the time period, that was breaking away from the patriarchal structures of the time. But I mean, I don't also want to say that like you're wrong for being offended by it because I can imagine having the opposite taught to me my entire life is exhausting. Right. And I'm thinking, you know, even to use Perpetua as an example, it's like from, it sort of is like you're using your faith as the most, most valuable thing rather than like taking care of your own child. And she had an infant. It was like, she was breastfeeding still. So like, there's sort of this idea that the most, the the highest value in your existence needs to be your faith over and above your love of other humans to an extent. And obviously, ideally, your faith is leading you to love other humans. But in her situation, it's like, she's making this terrible decision. Yeah, they both are making pretty bad decisions when you look at the whole details of like, they could have gotten out of that situation not having been eaten by tigers or whatever it is that happened to them that caused them to die. Same with, like, all of these women who are getting murdered for just not having sex with somebody. You're like, seriously? Your virginity is so important that you'd rather die than have sex with someone. And obviously this wasn't, like, a loving, caring relationship of having sex. They're definitely being, like, brutally raped, potentially. But somehow your life is less important to you than maintaining your virginity for God. Because it's not even like maintaining your virginity so that you don't get raped. It's literally simply for the holiness that you'll receive from 
not having sex with somebody, which feels really gross. The other thing that I want to mention quickly that I was remembering is there's also some saints out there that are more contemporary who are married, but they've been sainted specifically because they and their husband have decided to live as, as brother and sister. So they've specifically opted out of the sexual component of marriage, and that is specifically why John Paul II, in specific, he tended to, he sainted at least a couple of them, I think. Um, that's why they're sainted, is because they were like, actually, we're going to forego having sex even though we're married. And you're like, this is not a reason to be sainted. This is not a reason. This is like, you have a terrible relationship with your partner. And so you're just going to do what most relationships do after 50 years and just live as friends. Like, this is not really a sainthood. And they're being sainted because they're deciding to, like, revow themselves to virginity. Which I think is absurd. <laughs> but I appreciate where Lori's coming from because it's, like, so radically different and it makes a lot of sense. Well, the other thing I want to point out, though, with St. Cecilia... And probably with Thecla and not Perpetua because we have historical evidence of Perpetua because we have her journal. Although, I mean, I'm at a point right now where sometimes I feel like the church has just fabricated all sorts of stuff to just send their their narrative forward. I'm a little I'm speculative about Suspicion a lot of things. But those documents is, is, I think, ideal probably healthy including the bible all the all y'all who are listening including the bible um that i also think it's important to note and in the book bone gatherers which is was a big book for me in grad school i did a lot of research using that book pointed me in a lot of the directions of my research she talks about how there's also like an overt sexualization of these women so for example saint cecilia is i don't remember who it is that wanted to marry her but he's a nobleman, he's a general, he's someone who, in for all intents and purposes, today probably women would be down with marrying him, and definitely during the Greco-Roman time you'd be like, sweet, deal, A lot of them him. are pretty wealthy women also. There's an interesting fact about this, where like, the, that's a, good a lot point. of them are pretty wealthy women, so that's the an important men that point they too. are going to be engaged to tend to be also wealthy men who are going to provide them with comfortable lives. So it's not like they're being married off to like the old man in town who's going to beat them and they're resisting it. It's like they're just choosing faith over a lifestyle of of marriage, which also puts in a weird dichotomy that I think is problematic, but continue. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. So when you look at Cecilia's uh, in her, in her tomb, and I think you can. I think I can actually still see this. It's still saved on my maps. It's something I can go see. So maybe I'll take a picture and send it to you, and we can like put it on the Instagram or something. If I, if I do get to go there uh, in the next two weeks, because I'm almost, I can't, I'm going to be not in Rome anymore. And she's laid out in this very like erotic way, in and I don't mean erotic like holy and pleasurable. I mean it in the sexual way that we all understand that. The laity understand the colloquial laity. sense you know, of the word. Most people say understand it. The colloquial. Thank you. And there's a sense that Nicola Denzi in this book talks about how these virgin martyrs are almost sexualized in a way that happens when men are fighting with men, that they see the women as their women. So 
Typically, when two nations are fighting with each other, they'll talk about how the enemy's men want to come and rape their women. This doesn't mean that the men who don't want their women to be raped are thinking like, rape is an offense against women. They own their bodies. They should get to choose who they sleep with. No, they're thinking it is their bodies are our bodies. They're not the enemy's bodies. So the way that Cecilia in particular in many ways is elevated as a virgin martyr is in the sense that she was saving her virginity and not having sex with the enemy, not necessarily that she, and she's still like this sexy, gorgeous woman who died being beautiful. And the language that describes her dead body is as stunningly gorgeous, like stripped naked and, and gorgeous in a way that is like who's ever writing this out is almost like a virgin porn fantasy in a way. So it's a severe sexualization of these virgin women that are in some ways also made up so that the men, Christian men in their narratives can come across as heroes. So thanks St. Thecla. Peter, Paul is a little bit like, no, I don't want to hang out with you. Like, go, don't, you'll be in in danger. But then ultimately in the end, he is this great guy who protects her on her journey to be a missionary. And so there's this, there's this heroizing, I'm making up a word, creating heroes out of the Christian men or or the bishops or the priests within the community and then making them these like hot hero to these gorgeous virgins, but instead of having sex, which is evil, they're all celebrating and praising God. It's kind of weird. Yeah, it is weird. And it's, (laughs) it's, it's interesting too, because I'm not sure when the definition of chastity from Catholicism came to be written out in the catechism, but it's the integration of sexuality and thus inner unity of the person and their bodily and spiritual being. That's the definition of chastity verbatim. Um, I do use non-gendered language when I say that they would just use man, but we're going to be inclusive in our vocabulary. But the idea of like sexual integration and a body soul unification component, is it really sexual integration? to say, I'm just going to die instead of having sex with someone. And there's clearly a different cultural context that we're coming from because these people are all like a thousand years ago or at least 600 years ago or 700 years ago or whatever. Um, but yeah, it's there's a question in my mind around like why – why would we value virginity so much that it's more important to be a virgin than it is to be alive? And that is sort of the way that that was presented to me time and time again, is that it's more important to be a virgin. And so if you're going to have to, you know, even to the extent of like, if you're in high school and you think about like date rape getting talked about where it's like, it would be more important for you if somebody is about to rape you to allow them to kill you rather than to be raped by them. And that is super problematic thinking because it really is saying that like your only value as a person is in your virginity. And it's not about your whole personhood being something to be valued. It really is just like, can you be a virgin either for your whole life or until you get married? 
I think that there is, what I'm hearing you say is it's almost like saying it's better for you to die than to be raped. And the problem with that is, is yes, of course, it's horrible to be raped. I'm not trying to say that, oh God, that'd be, it's a terrible thing. It's a horrible, horrible thing. But there are so many women who have been raped and have gone on to live good, fulfilling lives and have done gorgeous things with their life. And so for them to be ruined and so they might as well just die is, is an important, is, 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 a, is a terrible message. The thing I think is interesting, though, is as you're saying that, I'm thinking about all these martyr stories that I've heard. And I'm thinking, that doesn't say it in the text, though. That's not what it's being communicated in the actual stories, that these women weren't valuable. I'm thinking about how it's more this idea that these women don't want to be married to these men and that they're chasing them and then something happens and they end up dying. Like These women aren't killing themselves. They end up getting murdered by the men or by their soldiers or something like that. Or they end up getting in trouble because they're Christians and because Christianity was creating, whether it's historically provable or not, creating problems within society in the early Roman church, in the early Roman society or early century in Rome. And so, yes, so that that is why they're being killed because it's like an anti-Christian statement, not so much a conversation about virginity or aestheticism. But then I'm also thinking about how that's actually, if I were to talk about purity culture with someone, because when I was doing research about this, I ended up stumbling on the Gospel Coalition's website where they talked about what purity culture is. And that's John Piper's website, for those who don't know. And their critique on purity culture was very much sounds to me like my defense of the virgin martyrs, where it's like you just don't understand the theology behind it. And my thought is, is how terribly religious spaces talk about sex to our children and to kids that we end up reinforcing these ideas of like sex is scary, sex is bad, just don't do it, it'll make you evil instead of an integrated sex life that fully is connecting everything together. Because wouldn't it have been cool for you to have been raised with this image of women who are like, these women said no, they owned their dignity. And many of the women who did not get, I mean, there's a lot of women, there's whole stories of women like St. Priscilla, who's a saint, never had sex, started a convent, inherited all her father's money. And to this day, her house is still standing and it still has a church connected to it and a bunch of catacombs. And she, virginity was like a power access point for her in the, in the, in the early church. And that was true for a lot of women. But it's almost like they don't want to teach us that. They want to teach us the part that keeps us small, not the part that could keep us, make us bigger. I think also even, right, like that story that you had of the, of uh, Priscilla. And there's a bunch of women who either start religious orders or they become a part of a religious order when they're really young. And then they like sort of grow up in it and then take it over or like start a new branch or whatever. But again, they're all virgins. So not necessarily martyrs, but they are all virgins. A lot of them also have like severe health problems and whatever, which is, you know, suffering gets us closer to God um, sort of mindset, which is a totally different topic that I think is both true and also problematic. Um, 
different conversation for a different time. But part of what was frustrating is like, yes, those stories can be empowering and they would be empowering if we also had stories of women who were sainted, who were moms and who just like lived a life. And we have a couple, you know, you've got like St. Monica, who is Augustine's um, mother, and she like prayed really hard for Augustine to be converted and then when it happened. And so she's, she's sainted. But there's very few of them who are just like, this person lived a life, they got married, or they didn't, and they like, weren't in a religious order, and they didn't die as a virgin martyr. And part of this is because we have very stringent requirements for how somebody gets sainted officially. Um, and that requires that, you know, you've got a ton of miracles that have been proven. I'm not really sure what that process is or how you prove a miracle, but we'll, we'll just let the Vatican have that for a moment. Um, you have all the people who you've got, yeah, you've got all these different stipulations that you have to have in order for somebody to be considered a saint. And so it can be so stringent that it would be hard to have somebody be a normal person and still be sainted. And so the idea is that we want people to be exemplary, to be official saints, but at the same time that like brings down the realities that most of us are living in where most people will get married and have kids, um, or at least get married given the birth, the declining birth rates amongst the millennials and Gen Z. Um, yeah. So it seems like it would be okay for those virgin martyrs to be lifted up or those religious sisters to be lifted up as saints if we at the same time had women who were also, who had experienced their sexual debuts or however we want to word it, like that those, the women that were sexually active were also able to be sainted at the same rate as those who were virgins. I can see that. And as we're talking I'm slightly going to change the topic a little bit because I think the other thing that's very appealing about virgin martyrs to a Protestant in purity culture is that it's an experience of venerating a woman. So there were no holy women. There just weren't any holy women. Women were secondary to men. Men were the leaders. Men are the ones that get to speak. Men are the ones that are your authority spiritually and in all ways. So for me too, I mean, the fact that I have, I have three Marys behind me because. Especially as someone who lives out of a suitcase. Marys. <laughs> I've been in very Catholic countries all year and I seem to just. I'm a, mi- I'm a minimalist and my altar is one of the most, all oh, my Marys are one of the most expensive things I put in my suitcase. This, them and my hairdryer. But, uh. The, I, the fact that I have them was a radical step. And my mother was devastated. I have, well, I guess I gave it to Brendan, but a hand-carved Our Lady of Guadalupe that was on my wall. And when my mom saw it, she went, oh, so you just pray to Mary now? And I said, yes. <laughs> yes, I do. But there was, there was this fear that you're taking a woman. And I don't think my mom would say this, but... There's this idea that taking a woman and elevating her is problematic also because it's not just because she's human because they don't believe that she, Protestants don't believe that Mary was sinless. 
I guess Catholics do believe she was a human though. I'm not going to get into Mariology. But there is this part where she is, cannot be held up in high esteem. Just like saints cannot be held up in high esteem. And women saints are even more dangerous because they haven't written anything. So I'm slowing down because I'm not sure if I lost you. Thank you for bearing with us this episode, given the technical difficulties. Um, That's all we have for you today. Thank you for joining us. As always, subscribe, like, and share. You can follow us on Instagram at sexpositivechristianfeminists. You can find me, Rachel, at rachel.alba.coaching, and Lori at Lori Kimberly. That's spelled L-U-R. R-I-E. If you are interested in learning more about feminism, erotic spirituality, and alchemy, check out Lori's programs and blog at www.lorikimmerly.com. And for sex coaching for people from Christian backgrounds and presently incarnational advent, visit Rachel, me, at www.sexwithspirit.com. Again, we are the Sex Positive Christian Feminists, and we will see you next week for another conversation about sexuality, spirituality, and feminism. Bye-bye.